turn on those headphones. It's time for Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Maine. Welcome to Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Maine, the podcast that explores all things kinky in a sexy and inclusive way. This show is intended for mature audiences aged 18 and up, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We believe in risk-aware consensual kink here on the show, so if you do try things mentioned on the show at home, know that neither the show nor the cast are responsible for any accidents, injuries, legal or property damages that may occur while getting your kink on. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 6 of Naughty Talk. I'm Sunny, she, her, and I'm here with HypnoStory, he, they. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I am well, thanks. Hopefully I can <laughs> speak clearly and get my brain together. Clearly it's a little frazzled today. Um, but we're here to talk about something called imposter syndrome today. And I think it's something that a lot of folks experience and that we don't talk about enough. And it's definitely been a subject of discussion for me recently and been on my mind. So why don't you start by just telling folks what even is imposter syndrome? I mean, it it's really feeling like you're an imposter. I mean, it's kind of what it says on the tin, right? So it's feeling like you're not whatever it is enough to belong in a space or that you don't deserve recognition that you're getting or that you don't deserve a position that people have asked you to take, for instance, teaching a topic um, and, and feeling like you don't belong there. And in particularly when it's actually not true that it's that these feelings come up for a lot of us that, you know, am I queer enough to call myself queer? Am I kinky enough to call myself kinky? Um, am I skilled enough at this thing to be doing it? Or am I skilled enough at this thing to be teaching other people how to do it? Those are some kind of common sort of genres of uh, imposter syndrome. Sure. And I, I definitely associate it with sort of internal negative self-talk thoughts that pop into my mind. Certain things like, surely folks are more X than me. Can I really call myself X if Y is true? You know, those sort of internal thoughts that pop into your mind that make you question yourself and often, you know, don't line up with the evidence that you've been doing this thing for a really long time. You've done it, you know, within your risk profile many times without an incident, or it's just, you know, something that you feel is an integral part of your identity and nobody else can tell you otherwise. But you know, I think that people kind of get in their head about certain things and it doesn't just apply to kink or to lifestyle stuff. It could be something that happens at your job. Um, so you gave some basic examples that a lot of people experience, but maybe one that's a little bit more personal for you. Yeah, sure. So when I went to the very first Charmed, uh, I was very new to the kink community. And I've been doing hypnosis for a long time, but not kinky or erotic hypnosis. Uh, that I was, this was something I was very, very new to. 
And the last day of the con, people had been telling me about this person, Calamity Brain, who it seemed like everybody knew and loved, and who was the other person from New Hampshire that was at the thing. And so the last day of the con, somebody finally introduced us because for the first time we were in the same place at the same time at a time that that introduction could happen. And we met and we talked for a few minutes and they said, so you're going to help me start a hypno group in New Hampshire, right? And I was like, what? And they were like, yeah, I've been wanting to start a group, but I'm not going to do it alone. You know, I want somebody to help me. So we're going to do it together. And I was like, okay, I will. But at the same time, I was also very much like, me? You know, I'm not a community leader. I don't run kink events. I mean, I know a bunch about running vanilla events because that's part of what I do for a living. But, you know, at that point, I had been to like three munches in my life. And here we were talking about running one. And I was just like, really? Okay, well, this person is, as far as I know, well-respected, and they seem awesome, and let's try it and see where it goes. And it it worked out really well. It's what we now call New Hampshire HypnoKink. And since then, Calamity's stepped back from it because they partially because they don't live in New Hampshire anymore and partially because of sort of real life stuff intervening. But, you know, but this was long before I thought about myself as somebody who would teach hypnosis. Now you do it all the time. Yep. yep. And all over the place at different conventions and not just at your individual munch. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We teach we teach all over the place. Uh, we're going to be at a number of things this spring. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, we run our own sort of ongoing online con, this thing on Discord we call Consolation, um, that, you know, we teach sometimes and sometimes we bring in other people to teach. And But I'll tell you, it took me a long time to feel like I really belonged. Right. Even after we had started New Hampshire HypnoKink, that pretty much every con that I was about to go to, including after I had started teaching, I was just like, I would panic usually the day before I left and be like, yeah, nobody's going to want me there. You know, I don't actually belong. I don't fit in. Nobody's going to like me. I should just stay home. Which makes me giggle on the outside because your classes are fantastic and I've never seen one not be well received. <laughs> well, thank you. And and I'll tell you, that is part of what finally conquered it in my brain is that we kept having so many people. And this was before Panda and I were teaching together. Uh, but, you know, when I taught with a number of people as demo bottoms and then Yoshi and I teaching together. I just got so much positive feedback and it was so positive where people would come up after class or they would message me 
you know, days or weeks or months later online and say, Hey, that thing you taught us, I'm using it and it's working for me. And that was amazing. Or, Hey, you helped me solve a problem. And those, those kinds of things, it was sort of finally enough evidence built up that I was like, okay, I, I do in fact belong here. And, and also, you know, the more I made friends and so going to a con was going to hang out with friends rather than it feeling like going to a thing where I didn't know anyone. Those were sort of the things that really changed it for me. Right. And I, I definitely experienced something very similar and I am newer on my teaching journey, at least um, in regards to kink. And so I definitely had a lot of those same feelings that you described before, you know, I taught my first classes and it was really validating to get positive feedback. But then, you know, I have signed on to teach some new subjects coming up at a different convention and I feel like even though it went really well, because I'm going to be doing something different or new, it's a new topic that I haven't done before, a little bit of that starts to creep back in, even if it's something that, you know, the, the classes that I'm going to be teaching are things that I do all the time and that people have asked me for one-on-one -on -one advice about on a really consistent basis for a very long time and probably something that has been part of my sort of kink repertoire for much longer than hip, definitely much longer than hypnosis, which was, you know, what I was teaching on last time around. And um, so we're going to be teaching at the kink school convention. Mac and I are doing a sensual BDSM class and a, a primal play class, which we've mentioned. And those are things that have really been part of my life for a very, very long time. So I'm really excited to do it. But even though they're things that I have a lot of experience and, you know, it's easy to have that sort of creep into the back of your mind and, you know, taking it sort of away from teaching, you had mentioned, you know, identity questions like things like, am I queer enough to call myself queer, that sort of thing. And I personally struggled with my sexual orientation for a really long time because, I'm definitely not straight. I'm a pansexual person and gender is not that important to me when, you know, um, in determining who I'm attracted to at all. And, you know, gender is actually a pretty fluid thing for me, although most of the time I feel pretty female. So, you know, mostly that's how I, I identify um, as a cis person. But in terms of queerness, you know, I am, how do I want to say this? On the outside, I definitely present in a way that a lot of people would just look at me and immediately think like cishet female. And so because I can pass and because I've had a lot of male partners, it was something that I struggled with. Like, I don't want to I was terrified that people would think I was sort of appropriating this, but at the same time to say that I was like heteroflexible or even 
bisexual didn't really feel genuine to me and it wasn't the truth of the matter. So it took me a long time to really own that and just be open about it and say, you know, I have the partners that I have at this point in time because they're people that I connected with, but it doesn't mean anything about my, you know, my gender identity or my sexual orientation. Yeah, I I had a very similar experience that I remember very clearly uh, sitting in my partner's living room and Z saying, oh, it was pride today. I should have asked if you wanted to go because, you know, sometimes people's going to pride after they realize they're queer is a big thing for people. And I looked at Sir and said, huh. I hadn't really thought of myself as queer. And Z said to me, well, would you consider yourself straight? And I was like, no. And Z said, okay, then you're queer. And that was a moment of like, oh, maybe this is something I can claim. Although it took me a while to get comfortable using that language because particularly at the time I didn't and still don't sort of present in a classically queer kind of way, at least to my mind. And I had not thought that much about being interested in like what genders of people I was that interested in. And so, like, I didn't feel like I had gone far enough into it to call myself that. And yet, to call myself straight definitely felt wrong. For sure. And I had that same feeling for a long time. Like, just to say, you know, I'm a straight person, it was not accurate. And it took a lot of time for me to sort of settle on what felt right. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, we're going to dig into that particular topic on a future episode this season with Panda a little bit and talk about sort of gatekeeping in the queer community um, and in other communities potentially. And so we're going to dig into that a little bit deeper, but it's definitely worth mentioning here because it, it was a major identity struggle for me for a long time. And, you know, my first pride parade was a really big deal for me because. I had always sort of felt like excluded from both camps. Like I didn't fit anywhere, you know, but there was a a certain feeling of rightness about participating in that when I finally came around to it. And it's something that at some point I'll probably dig into a little bit deeper on the show. You know, so we've talked a little bit about things like teaching or skill and identity, um, but imposter syndrome can also pertain to kink roles. So I identify as a dominant, for example, and a primal dominant, and I also have a dominant, but I don't really identify as a switch. That relationship is kind of unique, and I've talked a lot about how I sort of view DS as a spectrum, and you know, if I am a nine on the dominant scale, Mac is maybe a 10 or something like that, or you know, the fact that we have this very how should I say this, that we're very close on the scale in terms of dominance to each other, but he has a physical edge. We talked about that a little bit in the primal play segment, you know, where our 
sort of like mental dominance, um, psychological dominance is very evenly matched, but he often has the last word because he can physically like pin me down and spank me and say, this is the way it's going to be, or literally toss me over his shoulder consensually, of course, and walk away and say, we're leaving that kind of thing. So, you know, that, that is something that comes up because my other long-term relationship is with a person who really identifies as vanilla and we have a very natural sort of ds dynamic in our vanilla life where i tend to be the decision maker and the planner and you know that person's love language is definitely acts of service and anybody who is kinky looking at us would probably you know, think that we have a very kinky DS dynamic, but the reality is that that does not extend to the bedroom at all. You know, we don't engage in kink together um, because I'm a kinky person and my partner is not, they're not into it. It's fine. You know, because I, I certainly have a lot of outlets for my kink and we're very happy together. But I think that as a dominant, sometimes it creeps into the back of my mind that right now I don't have a regular partner who sort of identifies as being in dynamic. And um, it's something that I miss sometimes, but I'm also very happy with the partners that I have. So, you know, being polyamorous, if I meet somebody that is a good fit in that department, you know, it is something that I would consider, but generally it's not something that I, I search for really hard. It's sort of you know, I have a very full and happy life. And if I, you know, get smacked in the face with somebody that really clicks, you know, it's definitely something I'd be interested in exploring. But I think sometimes, you know, when people ask me what my kink roles are and I say, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm generally a dominant. I'm definitely on the D side of the slash, primal predator. And then, you know, people get a look at what are my current dynamics and the relationships that I have, that's a place that imposter syndrome starts to creep in. Yeah, of course. And that seems really natural. You know, and it's it's such an easy thing to think, well, I'm not acting dominant right now, so am I actually a dominant? You know, is, is, am I only allowed to claim the identities that are, de that are, um, things I've demonstrated in the last week or the last month or the last year or ever? And, and I think one of the things that's really important to realize is you can know that you're a dominant without ever having had a sub, a submissive. You know, you can know that you're a dominant without, having ever dominated anyone. And just because you haven't doesn't, or you haven't done it recently, doesn't mean that you're not just as much a dominant as someone who has a harem of submissives. That's a really good point. I mean, I don't really have a truly submissive bone in my entire body. And Mac and I joke about that a lot, but you know, I have topped a lot of scenes and in my, you know, more vanilla relationship, I definitely have more of a D role. And it's something that we joke about all the time 
you know, my partner and I, that we have this sort of like bizarre vanilla DS dynamic with no kink in the bedroom. And, you know, when I search myself about all of the scenes that I've done over the years, you know, what really felt like I was in my element, you know, there's no question in my mind that I am a dominant and that that's how I identify. And I imagine you're right because I have this imposter syndrome, even with all of those scenes and past relationships and past dynamics and other things, I still have this imposter syndrome. So for somebody who has never had that experience, I imagine that, you know, it can be even more difficult to overcome. Yeah. And sort of knowing when you're ready to jump in and do the thing for the first time can be really hard. You know, that particularly because a lot of the stuff we do is relatively dangerous. And so if you have done it a lot, it's pretty easy to be fairly confident that, you know, you've gotten the training and you've used that training in doing scenes with a number of people over a period of time and have been able to do that within everyone's risk profile, you know, or you've made maybe some small mistakes and learned from them, or maybe made a bigger mistake and recovered from it. But before you've done that, it can be really easy to say, uh, well, do I get to do this? Do I get to say that I'm a rigger or do I get to say that I'm a hypnotist or do I get to say that I'm an impact top without having actually done the thing? And I think, yeah, if you identify that way, you do get to say it, you know, let us give you a giant permission slip to, to claim the identities that you feel that are yours, that are, are part of who you are. And also please separately think about your skill level before you do do the thing. And your risk profile and the risk profile of the person or people you're doing it with. And I think it's totally fair and appropriate to let them know, honestly, what your skill level is. Yeah, I've taken a bunch of classes, but I've never actually done this in a scene. I think that's a totally fair thing to say. Might that mean somebody might decide they don't want to play with you? Yeah, it might. Is that their choice? Yeah, it is. And a lot of the time, particularly more experienced people are often very willing to say, oh yeah, I'll bottom, you know, I'll bottom for your first hypno scene or I'll bottom for your first rope scene or whatever, if it's something that they know a lot about. And in some ways, an experienced bottom can be really, really helpful for somebody who's topping a type of play for the first time because they can give you good feedback. And, you know, I, I mean, I wish my favorite way to teach hypnosis would be if I had a room full of new people and experienced people and I could pair every new top with an experienced bottom and every new bottom with an experienced top that it would go so fast and so easily for a huge percentage of people. And, and I'll be honest, hypnosis isn't that hard to learn for most people. 
that to get started with it is pretty easy and pretty low risk. So it's not a huge deal, but you know, getting to have some experience or to find somebody and ask them to mentor you in this thing you want to do. It can be a really good, you know, cause I think it's important to ask yourself is what I'm feeling imposter syndrome, which is to say, I don't get to claim this role because of some sort of existential not enoughness. Or is it that you're concerned that you don't know enough to do it at a level of skill and safety that are within your risk profile? Those are different things. And sometimes they can kind of present in similar ways or they can happen at the same time. And I think being aware of both things is really important. Right. That's what I was going to say is that I think it's important to understand that your role or your identity is a separate entity from your skill level. And it's perfectly acceptable to say, hey, I'm a rigger, but I don't have a ton of experience. This is something new that I'm exploring you know, or whatever the role is, that this is how I identify. I definitely know that this is my thing, but I am currently building my skill level or building my skill profile. And this is where I'm at right now. And when we talk about sort of combating imposter syndrome, you know, doing a self check-in, you know, asking yourself, can I do this reasonably safely, or at least within my risk profile? You know, that's an important question to ask yourself, because if you are doing something that involves a lot of risk and you really don't have confidence in your skill because like you haven't taken any classes on it or you have never done it before or seen it done properly, you know, there are things that are exceptionally risky without the proper skills. And so, yes, it's important to make sure that you're not really looking at an actual skills deficit. However, you know, eventually you're going to get to the point where you acknowledge that, yes, this thing has some risk, but I've done everything that I can do to be prepared and safe. And so I am at that place where I'm going to, you know, with consent, go ahead and do that thing. And, you know, in terms of identity, which is different, you know, than a specific kink skill, for example, ask yourself, does this feel right to me internally? Because if the answer is yes, you have permission to release yourself from the confines of the social pressure that are potentially, you know, that might be imagined or might be telling you otherwise. But, you know, only you really know who you are as your authentic self and you have permission to live that way. And I think that if you can get to that place where you sort of, you know, stop giving a flying fuck about what other people think, it can be really freeing. And it can also be really hard to get to that place. And if you can't get all the way there, it's okay. You know, forgive yourself, continue to explore, try again, but keep moving forward. You know, I, I experienced something very similar with hypnosis in that, you know, when I first learned, you know, I did a lot of learning with you and with Panda in particular, and you're both very experienced. So, um, you know, even after I had done a lot of classes and a lot of learning and a lot of practice with, you know, my own partners and with people that I knew well who were experienced, it was a totally separate experience the first time I tried to drop someone 
who was new themselves. So when I sort of stepped outside of that bubble and I, you know, did a hypnosis scene um, with a person who had no experience at all, just really on my own topping that scene, that was a really big moment for me. And actually even um, dropping a person into hypnosis just for fun and not for erotic purposes who didn't have any experience. And um, that was really fun and really validating because I feel like every time I drop somebody who has no experience at all, that imposter syndrome slips away just a little bit more because in my brain, even though I had done a lot of practice, I was saying, well, you know, basically the bottoms in these scenarios have also had a lot of practice and maybe it's them that are really good at it and not me. Yeah. And it's hard to believe often, no matter how much experience the person has that you've been practicing with, it can be hard to believe when you know that their skill is a big part of it when they tell you that you're good, you know, and, and Panda and I both thought that you were great pretty much right away. You know, you, you were a natural <laughs> and that was a hard thing for you to believe because I think because it felt too easy. Yeah. I think that there is, um, there's a piece where you build something up in your mind and you think this is something that requires a lot of skill and is really difficult. And that might even be true, but if it's something that you kind of take too easily, that can be its own type of imposter syndrome. You're like, well, you know, I'm kind of new to this and it seems to be going well, that can't be right, even though it is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And with hypnosis, particularly, I think a lot of people find that the thing about it that's most surprising is that it can be really easy to get started. That with a person that you have good trust and rapport with and a little bit of knowledge, you can probably do a fun hypnosis. Absolutely. You know, it's it's just it's a it's a relatively low barrier for entry. There are some other kink skills like single tail whips come to mind. Fireplay comes to mind that are things that you really need a bunch of skill before you go anywhere near a human. Right. And I definitely have things, for example, that are on my hard limits list for almost everybody on the planet, except for, you know, a person who I know has exceptional skill in that department because of the level of risk, like knife play is an example. We talked about that with Mac. He has exceptional knife skills in general, both inside and outside of play. And also, you know, both he and I have exceptional first aid skills. So, you know, in that context, I have felt safe to explore that thing, but knife play with a real knife is not something that I would explore with anybody else, or I I can't imagine um, nobody else that's in my life right now. Yeah. And that's something that also came out of, in addition to the extraordinary level of skill, but also the depth of the relationship and the trust that you have with Mac specifically. Right. And I I definitely think that when you have a trusting relationship with a partner, it can definitely 
be something that allows you to explore things that are new to you in terms of skill or otherwise, because you really trust that that person is going to tell you if something is not right, if you're the top or that that person, you know, is going to stop if they feel like something isn't right, if they're the top. And, you know, I personally don't love to do something that's newish to me when the partner is also new, I guess, is a clearer way of saying it. Yeah, I I think that that makes a lot of sense. Although, again, I think it also depends on what it is and what the situation is, right? So let's say you don't know anything about rope and you go to an introduction to rope class and pair up with someone that you're just meeting in the class. So you're brand new to each other, but it's in a class with an instructor who is there to kind of spot everyone, in addition to giving instruction, you know, I, I would be pretty comfortable in that kind of a situation without, yeah, that, for sure. without that expert spotter, I might be less comfortable, particularly with somebody I don't know. Right. Cause if I'm doing something new with somebody I know well, like Panda, then I can read her responses really, really well because we know each other really well. So I pretty much know where she's at when we're doing something. And I don't worry about a failure in communication getting in the way or, you know, for instance, somebody being too embarrassed to safe word. That's a thing that happens. Sometimes people have guilt about safe wording. I think they shouldn't, right? That I think that's a really, really important tool and it's really important that people use it. But that doesn't mean that people always will say forward when they probably needed to. And right. with somebody brand new, you don't know that. And I would probably argue that in the scenario you're describing in a class that partly you're not necessarily putting that trust into the person that you're assigned to practice with. You're putting your trust into the spotter or the instructor who hopefully has been vetted. And, you know, when I am teaching something, I always really like to come right out in the beginning and say, this is my experience level. Like with this thing, this is what I've done, how I learned And if I reference something in passing, because sometimes that comes up, like you'll reference something that's slightly off topic in a class. If it's something that I'm not teaching on in the moment, or if it's something that I don't feel I'm fully qualified to speak on and I'm asked about it, I will absolutely say that. I'll say, you know, you know, for example, I don't do anything with rope and I would be really comfortable talking about a lot of other types of bondage, but I'm, you know, completely a novice in the rope department. So, you know, if I was talking about another type of bondage and somebody asked me a question about rope, I would absolutely say, you know, there are lots of fantastic classes on rope and this is not one of them. That's, it's not my thing, but I can point you in the right direction. Or, you know, I recommend that you ask that question of somebody who really does know. Yeah. And I I do the exact same thing. There are a couple of the classes that Panda and I teach that I do demos that use rope, but it's in the context of a little bit of rope and a lot of hypnosis in a hypnosis based class. And that's a great example. Yeah. You know, and I always say, look, I consider myself at this point an advanced beginner rope top. Although at the time we 
start, we developed those demos. I just said, because it was true that I was just a beginner rope top. Like I was really new to rope. And I said, I feel comfortable doing the things I'm going to do in these demos with Panda. And she feels comfortable also with these demos. However, I absolutely am not comfortable teaching you how to do rope. So I'm going to do this to show you how we can use rope with hypnosis so that if you already know how to do rope or you go learn rope, you know, you have that to use, but here's what I'm comfortable teaching and here's what I'm only comfortable using as a part of a demo. So hopefully we've given folks a lot of things to think about. I think that, you know, we could talk about this for a long time, but imposter syndrome is something that affects many people. It's not talked about as often, I think, as it should be. And in many aspects of life, it could be at work, it could be in your role in your family, it could be with any type of skill and certainly in a kink or lifestyle setting. So I'm glad we talked about this a little bit and um, hopefully, you know, it will give folks some confidence to continue to explore and to continue to be their authentic selves. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is such an important topic that I think holds back a lot of people from expressing important parts of who they are. And if that you're thinking might be you, you know, that's something for you to think about and, and maybe put down. All right. Next up, we have Dan and Dawn, he, him, and she, her of eroticawakening.com. No S on that. Dan Dawn published several works about MS and DS and high protocol and taught quite a few classes on these subjects as well. More information available on their website. How are you both today? Fantastic. I'm pretty good. Thanks for being on the show. We're excited to have you. Sure thing. Our pleasure. So we're going to talk a little bit about high protocol today, but before we kind of jump into our main topic, we've mostly been having folks introduce themselves, talking a little bit about what their kink roles and identities are this season. So would you guys like to sort of introduce yourselves a bit in terms of some of those things? Sure thing. Do you want to go first, honey? Sure. So um, my name's Dawn, and you're wanting kink identification. So, oh my gosh, I, my, the list is way too long, but let's start out with I am a follower of Dan's leadership and have been for 21 years and um, kink wise. Well, actually power exchange is my kink and is my fetish, but there's also other things that I like. I'm also an exhibitionist and, and I like the impact play and all that fun stuff. And my name is Dan. And uh, as Don alluded, I am a leader in a power exchange relationship. Some people use the term Dom or, um, master or all kinds of fun. We prefer a leader follower for our dynamic um, in the bedroom or in the dungeon. I consider myself a top big fan of impact play, but my main kink along with power exchange is also vulnerability. Um, other than that, I dig the sexual BDSM. And mm-hmm. uh, as Don mentioned, we've been doing it for a little while now. Excellent. Um, thanks for sharing. So, We're going to talk a little bit about high protocol, as I mentioned, and most of life situations have a certain etiquette associated with them. 
even in vanilla settings. And in some cases, when it comes to BDSM, this can be taken on purpose to a sort of more extreme place. I mean, personally, I don't really like to eat my meals with the wrong fork. So while I don't currently have a relationship right now with a high protocol dynamic, I definitely understand the appeal, you know, and things like symbolism. But why don't we just kind of start with tell us what is high protocol and why do you love it? Wow. So high protocol for us is being more on point and having some ritual and um, a little traditional way that we do things. But um, wow, I don't even know how to describe it more than with my part. It is literally paying attention on purpose, being formal about things and being totally mindful with what Dan or whoever he's invited to whatever we're doing being very mindful of the whole situation and what's going on. Yeah. I think that, you know, a lot of times on, um, we run into a lot of people that are saying, well, is your relationship, you know, because, Oh, you're, you're in a power exchange relationship is a high protocol, but they don't actually understand what the term means. Right. For us that, and as Don said, right. The finding that high protocol power exchange is, is a little bit tricky it sometimes seems to emphasize on more, whether you're having more protocols, more rituals, mm-hmm. or that things are just more regimented. Um, but and, and some people make the mistake of thinking it is less relaxed, more um, controlling in a micromanagement sort of way. Instead, for us, that high protocol is, it's like Don said, we're very clear, very well defined, we're, we have a very precise style. Um, I would not be um, bratting or being silly or anything like that in a high protocol situation. So, I mean, right now we live in an RV, so we are a little relaxed. But if Dan told me, so, so we could look like any other couple, right? Except when he uses that voice, I know to pay attention and to do what he says. But if he said, Dawn, tomorrow we are going to be high protocol, I would probably dress in my leather, the little bit that I brought, right? And that is more to remind me of the headspace I'm supposed to be in. And I would very much be, yes, sir, no, sir, sitting at your feet, you know, that sort of thing, just being more on point. And we actually are, it's really funny. High protocol is really interesting in that it is both, some people perceive it as an event-based situation, We're going to go to a leather conference, Mm -hmm. whether it's MSC or whatever. And while we are there, we will be in our high protocol mode. And that's fine. Another fun. (laughs) And fun. Absolutely. Right. And and we have done that on occasion, uh, especially other relationships I have where we are not high protocol. We'll go to events and I'll say, this is a high protocol event. So um, all in, in high protocol situations, all of my followers uh, female-bodied followers have to wear a skirt. All followers have to wear white, plain tops and black, plain bottoms. That's simply what we do. In there's a way that they walk around me. Who's walking where? Uh, whether they're going to introduce themselves or speak to other people. All of that is part of the high protocol. That simply the purpose of it is to remind us we have a power exchange relationship. This is a power exchange dynamic and pay attention to that. And that's the primary thing that you're going to pay attention to. As Don mentioned, sometimes 
we will not be in high protocol mode, even whether it's at an event or a lot of times in our day to day living, right? In our, as, as she mentioned, we, we're doing RV living, right? We have a house on wheels. And being high protocol when you're in a 30 foot box isn't effective for us. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not what we need right now. But it's very uh, rewarding to go visit friends that are high protocol households. And I can give Dawn some additional instruction to say, you know what, you're not going to use furniture. This is a high protocol situation. And you'll speak when you're spoken to. And if two dominants are talking, you're not going to speak up and interrupt them. And if you do have something to contribute, you'll wait your turn. And then you'll open it up with, sir, do you mind if I add something to this or something along those lines? What a long answer to a short question you just gave us. Well, I think it gives a a good sort of picture um, of how you guys are doing it individually. And some of the things that come to mind for me when I think about high protocol are things like rules about when the S-type can speak, for example, Um, things like poses that an S-type might be expected to assume in certain situations, things like formal service um, inspections. So you've given us kind of a peek into your own dynamic a little bit, but do you have sort of a list of things that you would consider to be a little bit more high protocol than, I don't know, how else to describe it, how to separate it out sort of high protocol versus a more general DS? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a great way to look at it. We have a day-to-day power exchange relationship where Dawn makes my coffee every day. Um, There's a variety of things that are a baseline for us, for our power exchange. But it's kind of subtle. If you saw it from the outside, you may not know that we're power exchange, but you may not be looking and seeing the head nods that Dan gives me or hand signals or, you know, things like that or see the expectations. But um, in high protocol, you're going to see it. In, yeah, that's a great way to put that, Don. In a high protocol situation, it is more emphasized, more visible. I have a higher expectation that... In our day-to-day power exchange, if I say, if Dawn brings me a cup of coffee and I say, thank you, um, and she doesn't respond, okay, who cares? If if we're in a more high-protocol situation, how she hands me that cup of coffee is well-defined. And my response to that cup of coffee is well-defined. And my tolerance for that coffee being perfect is more defined. So... For us, that's what the high protocol aspects are. We're bringing it up a level. We're putting more energy into the power exchange than in non-high protocol situations, whether we're at an event or at home. Right. So it's more noticeable that there is a hierarchy even. So not just the power exchange, but the hierarchy. When Dan and I ran the Columbus space together, right, we it would look like we were peers. Mm -hmm. from the outside, right? So we're each doing things. We're each making sure people are following the rules. We're both making sure toilet paper's in the bathroom. We're both emptying the trash. You know, we're doing director things. But um, if Dan used that tone of voice or whatever, I'm, I mean, regardless, I'm still going to obey. If we're at this space at a high protocol event, there is no doubt who's in charge. Like I said, it's just more visible. It's really funny that you talk about the coffee. I was saying that the other day 
because I usually do not make my own coffee. <laughs> but I was in a situation where I had to, and it was actually terrible. <laughs> I was like really appreciative in that moment. I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot make my own coffee correctly anymore because I'm so out of the habit of doing it. This is terrible. So I took that moment, you know, to verbally and out loud appreciate my partner for the fantastic coffee that's prepared for me before I'm like conscious in the morning. So I I think that what it sounds like is we're looking at a dynamic that's in place all the time with power exchange that there is there all the time. And what's different about the high protocol is that it is intentionally visible to observers in that rituals are clearly signifying that power exchange to people who might be watching. Would you say that that's? Yeah, I I think so. Part of it is not just the emphasis of visibility, but some of it is there's an additional layer of, of, of a rules. It really interesting that the rules that we have for our day-to-day power exchange are more about getting productive out of our day, right? For example, one of the things that we do when we are in a high protocol mode is Dawn asks my permission to use the restroom. That's something that just reminds her I am in charge of her that completely. Even her biological functions are at my whim. When we're not in a high protocol mode, that's shit. We don't have time for that, right? We're trying to get, we're getting things done. We're, in, we're having fun. She's busy. I'm busy. And she just goes, right? Um Little things like that that are that that little emphasis to ourselves, and we talk about it being more visible. But the reality is, it's not about being visible to other people. It is about the emphasis to ourselves that we are in a power exchange dynamic. It is the primary dynamic in our relationship. The fact that we love each other is secondary. The fact that we married is not even in, in the list of important things. What is important is our foundation of power exchange. High protocol is a great way to remind us and to keep that on top, especially, you know, when we, we've been together 21 years at this point. So having those times of it's high protocol day, week, month is a great way to remind us of what got us these 21 years. It's actually exciting. Got it. So Maybe a little bit about visibility, but even when you're alone and nobody's observing at all, it's really sort of a, I think maybe an intensifying of the dynamic that you already have going on where maybe you do decide to do a little bit more micromanaging or have some more consistent rules that are just in place all the time rather than uh, a system where things are more relaxed and you're sort of just asserting dominance, you know, here and there where you feel it's important. That, that's what we should have said to start with. You've <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So you mentioned something about high protocol events. And I mean, most people who are sort of tuned into lifestyle events will see things floating around invitations for various types of high protocol events, um, things like high protocol dinners, that kind of thing. If somebody was going to attend that, what might they or something like that, what would they expect? Well, and you're right. The most common one, I believe, is the high protocol dinner. And we've run uh, well over a dozen of those ourselves. I actually teach a class on it on Zoom of what to expect and how to run it. And we have a little mini ebook at this point with all those notes. Mm -hmm. We do. and I'm gonna, we're going to tell the story two different ways what a high protocol dinner looks like. <laughs> because we see it from two sides of the curtain. <laughs> yeah, and it's from, from my side, it's going to be a short story. It's fantastic. 
I show up. Somebody takes my coat, assuming we're not, unless we're having course at the house. Um, I sit down with the other dominants, the other leaders. We have nice conversations. Um, snacks and appetizers and drinks show up magically. And then we go eat dinner together and we have, we have a peer conversation. And, um, at the end, we do a little ritual. We'll save the little ritual till last, but it's so easy, right? No, I don't, no, I, no. <laughs> <laughs> so like I said, I, I've got lots and lots. I've got a notebook full of notes on how to run these events when we run them at the house or when we ran them at the space for a much bigger crowd, for our teas, for, you know, all kinds of stuff. And with the way we do high protocol events, and we're not talking like regional hotel events, right? We're talking about, Talk house, about the dinner. house dinners. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the submissives, the, the followers, we, we do all the work. The dominants are like, make food, make it good, make sure we're entertained. And so we've got all the, the shop, the menu preparation, right? The shopping, the making sure we've got all the stuff for the kitchen that we need. Um, when I'm kitchen bitch, which means I'm in charge. I make sure that I have a schedule. I make sure everybody has jobs. I make sure we rotate jobs. I make sure the food's done on time. We discuss how we're going to serve the food because it depends on what the dining room situation looks like, right? It could be a big dining room with enough room for us to serve everyone. It could be a very small dining room, which we've done before, where we weren't able to serve on the right side all the time because of the way, the little space that we had. So we made other arrangements. And one time we had it at the space. Oh, remember the last dinner we had at the space? We had like 20 dominants at the table. We had 20 submissives. We double filed into the room and went around the U-shaped tables and every one of us served the plates at the same time. It was phenomenal. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of work. We do entertainment. We make sure there's a, a moment of entertainment after dinner. There's dessert. There's coffee. There's... It's phenomenal. We and, and when the dominants are chatting together before dinner, we actually have a follower in the room at all times to stand in the corner and make sure that the dominants never need anything. But the dominants have been given a bell and they like to ring the bell for things. <laughs> the, the fun part about it, right, is it is a scene without dungeon furniture Mm -hmm. It is absolutely a scene the whole way through. Um, We're expecting, you know, I I make light of what the dominance role in it is, but you dress like you're going to a formal event. You you're on point. You're paying attention. You're not looking for mistakes, Mm -mm. but if mistakes happen, you're appropriately responding to them. It is a scene the whole way through. And at the end, and again, like Dawn mentioned, right, from an outsider's perspective, I come in, I sit down, I have a nice dinner. And we assume that the submissives are eating, but they don't get to sit at the table with us. Mm -mm. They're sure as heck not joining our conversation. At the end of the entire event, we gather, and the, the most common what we do is a ritual to acknowledge the event. So we have all the submissives line up and kneel and their dominant or the house dominant, if the submissive doesn't have their own, will feed them a single grape. 
as if, you know, this is mocking that this is their dinner for the night and give them some word that says your service has been pleasing tonight or I particularly enjoyed the entertainment or I thought that my teacup was going to run empty, but magically at the last moment it was refilled and I appreciate your efforts. Sometimes at these, this then becomes a play party but most of the times it doesn't. Most of the times the focus is on the power exchange, the protocols itself. And so it sounds like there's sort of a, a combined effort for all of the submissive types or followers to sort of orchestrate this whole event together in a coordinated way rather than everybody sort of having on display their individual rituals or dynamics. Does that sound about right? Yeah. So at the beginning before the event is um well, when the event is designed, usually the rules, the house rules are agreed upon and shared with everyone. So everybody knows going in kind of what the expectations and the rules are. And that makes it much easier on everyone because they don't have to guess. And it's really fun. A And the, uh, what we call the easy version of this is if you have a bunch of couples coming, then the submissive takes care of their leader, um, right? Which the, But the, the, I don't know, the hard mode is you don't have that distinction. You have a submissive that is assigned to do a thing, and they take care of whoever needs to have that thing happen. Um, so it's more role-based than it is, I am taking care of my, my master. I am taking care of my dominant. Got it. I feel like we should play a little game. Like, let's say one of these dinners was going on and as Don was describing, everybody serves their plate at the exact same moment and it's this sort of lovely coordinated event. And then one follower, I don't know, drops mashed potatoes into their master's lap. How's that going down? (laughs) So, um... This would be something that we, as the dominants, have figured out beforehand who's taking care of what. In Again, my preference is not the easy mode. My preference is it doesn't matter whose submissive that is, that dominant gets to respond how they want to for that submissive. Now, it would be a very unusual situation to have some kind of physical punishment right? Because that turns it into a play thing and a punishment thing. But instead, uh, and, and Dom can speak to this, but I, if I was the master, I would push my chair back. You know what, though? Let's run that scenario. So you've just dumped. I'm, I'm not <laughs> Master Dane. I'm not your guy, right? I'm Master... Don't be Master Hank. I'm Lord, <laughs> I'm Lord Dragoncock, okay? Okay. <laughs> And I put, and you've just dumped mashed potatoes in my lap. I would push my chair back, and then what are you going to do? I would be absolutely horrified. So, um, mm, I would probably drop to my knees after glancing at you, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm going to acknowledge that I'm yours, and I'm getting ready to take care of this apology. And I would drop to my knees, apologize profusely, and. Man, this is this is intuition, you know. This is uh-huh. I don't know if I would I don't know if I would kneel and wait for punishment, or if if I would kneel and start to clean up the mess because the mashed potatoes are going to fall on the floor. Right. 
Wait, more no, than no. likely. You you better be doing pick. one. I got you gotta pick. pick. You gotta be doing one of those things right now. I if if they stood up, I would probably wait and see what the outcome was. I so I in this case no, I, knowing it was gonna be punishment of some sort. Now being a gracious fellow that I am, uh I might know that this Dawn person is owned by somebody else and I might you know, I might reach out to them first and say, do you mind if I reply, respond to this or would you prefer to? Um, if, you know, it would really just be a matter of, I would just brush the potatoes off of my lap. I would step aside while this was cleaned up and I would say, we'll handle this later. For now, I would like a fresh plate um, because I'm a dick like that. And I would rather Dawn walks with that dread of, oh my God, what's going to happen? I might well say, you know what? Here's the worst punishment I could give somebody in that situation. I would call in the kitchen bitch, which is the we, the submissive or slave that is in charge of the kitchen. We like to be called that, by the way. Yes. We, we came up with <laughs> that, that name. That is a, uh, a title <laughs> of honor. honor. Yes. <laughs> I would call into the, if I was, you know, if I want, yeah, I'm going to be hardcore about this. I would call into the kitchen bitch. I would say, uh, Dawn is no longer qualified to serve at this dinner. Ouch. But I can see you doing that. And I would say, I don't want to see her out of the kitchen again. And away she goes. Wow. Rough all the way around. But as the person that dropped the mashed potatoes in the lap, perfectly reasonable. Yeah. So if your listeners are digging the, you know, from a power exchange dynamic, I would, I think it'd be really interesting how they, if they can um, emphasize with that situation or empathize what i say emphasize em- well Close, either way. right <laughs> you're not qualified to be on a podcast anymore um <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> oh oh man and then i'm gonna regret i'm gonna regret not saying here's what i should have said oh hey there follower dawn looks like there's some mashed potatoes you dropped on the floor why don't you go ahead and pick those up I knew you would think of this at some point. And I was not going to prod you. Eat them off the floor. Yep. Oh, man, why didn't I think of that before? Yep. The germaphobe in me is cringing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I'm just teasing. But um, no, I'm also kind of just imagining I have not had a bell. And I think I would enjoy the prospect of having a bell. Like this could be a really fun thing for me. Yeah, I have a lot of DS in my life, but not a lot of high protocol um, in this way. So definitely some fun ideas to think about for future consideration. Mm. And it's it's really neat because some people are going to sound, some people are going to think that this sounds really harsh. Dan has punished me during a high protocol before and um, the broccoli one. And then there was also one where he pushed me up against the wall because I I did something and I don't even remember what it was. Tell and, the broccoli story real quick. Well, the one up against the wall, I wanted to mention that one because it made me wet. I was absolutely, I was, I was, ter- was I terrified, I was I, but I was Tell wet. Okay. So the broccoli one. So Dan <laughs> hates broccoli. He hates broccoli. I was not the kitchen bitch that night. There was someone else and they came up with the menu and broccoli was on the menu. And I was like, well, what am I going to do? Because I can't take out a plate with only two items on it when they specifically picked the broccoli to add color to the plate. And I'm like, okay, so Dan doesn't like to be singled out 
being different and color to the plate. He'll go with it. It'll be okay. I'll just take the plate out with the broccoli on it. He just won't eat it. it it'll be fine. And instead, I got called out, made to kneel, chastised in front of everyone about there being broccoli on his plate. And then he took all the broccoli and shoved it in my mouth, <laughs> gave me both of his plates. So now I had to rise with a mouthful of broccoli, two dirty plates. Well, it wasn't dirty. He wanted a fresh serving since it had been tainted by broccoli. <laughs> and I had to get up. And I'm a larger girl. So getting up without the use of my hands is a challenge. But I did it and could not spill anything. And then back into the kitchen. Of course, I'm embarrassed, red-faced. But um, it, it was hot. <laughs> and, and this is, to me, the, the reason I like that story particularly is because, you know, we could, if you, if this see, if this what conversation was about great scenes that we've had throughout the past twenty one years, you know, oh, this time I spanked Dawn and tied her up and did all this kind of stuff. That's fine. These high protocol interactions, these are for me, for Dawn. They're more memorable. Mm -hmm. They're more significant as foundational to our relationship. I like spanking Dawn. I like Ben Hill. <laughs> Earlier today, we said we played pick a color. And she would pick a color and I would spank her with something of that color. That's all fun shit. We enjoy it. But those don't really identify our relationship. They're not the foundation of who we are. But that broccoli story, that's, that's part of creating this relationship. And I really, really hate broccoli. He really hates it. It does sound like an unfortunate mistake, <laughs> but... Um, so what I'm really hearing is that we're getting at the why a little bit. And that was one of the questions that I had for you both. You know, we can kind of envision sort of what it might look like on the outside, what somebody might experience at one of these events. But why do people do it, especially since it's not something that is necessarily in play all the time, although it could be. But, you know, do you feel that it increases intimacy? Do you find that it's mostly just to sort of reinforce the dynamic and remind you of where everybody stands? What kind of things does it really do for you? All of the above. All of the above. And um, so, like I said, Dan and I have been doing this for 21 years, and we designed a contract before we actually did the collaring. And the each year we modify the contract and we give our year a theme. So the first year was building our foundation. The second year was high protocol. And I'm going to tell you, it was, well, except for the slut years, um, which we're still living. It was one of my favorite themes that we did. I mean, I'm an introvert and I like paying attention to Dan. So it, it's, I liked being in high protocol, even at munches. And it was actually kind of funny because um, people in the kink community don't always understand power exchange as a relationship. So twice I had other followers come to my house to ask me if I was okay. And I'm like, holy cow, this is an intervention. No, I'm fine. This is exactly where I want to be because I wouldn't speak up in public. I always walked behind Dan. You know, I was in a, um, a, a, a stance that said I wasn't interacting with other people because my focus was on Dan. And oh yeah, two different people had interventions with me. 
that kind of thing drives me nuts. And it's something that I've witnessed. You know, I was um, actually in a situation with somebody that I know who was teaching a class and doing a demo with their long-term partner. And I know both of these people very well um, and love them both dearly. And obviously, you never know exactly what is going on inside of somebody else's relationship behind closed doors. But I've never had any doubts whatsoever that, you know, everything was on the up and up and really lovely people and so happy with their dynamic. And this person who I think had kind of stumbled into the convention being sort of new to kink actually took it upon themselves to interrupt the demo and in front of the entire class, you know, come out and say, why would you let someone do these things to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we were all totally taken aback. We have had that happen to us at the beginning of one of our classes. I don't even think we were teaching power exchange. I think we were teaching like sensual spanking or something, but it could have been power exchange. And they were like five minutes late to the class. We were still doing our intro. And as she's marching down the aisle to take a front seat, she looks at me and she goes, so when did you decide to give up all your power and follow a man? And I mean, she was pissed. And we had to calm her down because I went into defensive mode. And um, Dan had to calm her down. (laughs) And luckily, we had a whiteboard. And we're like, okay, so you have concerns about this. Let's write them down. And we will make sure we answer these questions during the class, right? Instead of letting her have the whole show, right? So, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. it's an interesting situation. No doubt about it. You know, but I I was definitely impressed by how those people handled that situation in particular, you know, the S type really stepped forward and advocated for themselves. You know, this is what Mm -hmm. makes me happy. This is what I've consented to. And it was really kind of a lovely moment in that, you know, the D type allowed that person to sort of just step forward and demonstrate so that there really was no question that they had agency. And, you know, I think, yeah. I mean, we all kind of, I think, people who knew them wanted to sort of step in because we were sort of outraged, but nobody wanted to interrupt, you know, the class further. It was just a very difficult situation. And so, you know, they just sort of stepped forward and said, you know, this is who I am and this is what I enjoy and what I consent to. And I'm very happy. And we can take any further questions about this, you know, offline after the class. So it was very graceful. And I'm not saying who it is, but I know the person will be listening to this. So I, you know, I hope they know that I thought that was just like the most graceful and really well handled situation, even though it felt yucky for everybody involved in the moment. Right. And that's why I think things like this podcast, you know, um, are important conventions and classes because, you know, it gives people an opportunity to see that kinksters are normal human beings and, you know, having a power exchange does not mean that there's abuse involved. Yeah, there's a there, there's a big difference between power exchange and abuse. And, you know, one of those um, interventions that I went through was um, someone that I, I really respected uh, from the spiritual community. And she took me out to tea 
And oh my God, she was so, so she's such a feminist, which is fabulous because so am I. And she's like arguing with me and I've got like all these notes and history and I'm trying to explain how it makes me feel. And, you know, like I said, I get defensive about it sometimes because I don't always have the words to explain my feelings. And finally, after like three hours, I'm like, look, you're a feminist, right? And that means that I, as a woman, get to make my decisions and do what I want to do to make me happy. And she's like, yes. I'm like, this makes me happy. She's like, you should have said that three hours ago. It would have saved us a lot of time. And then she ended up looking into the kink community, becoming part of a um, power couple in our area, has her own submissive, runs events. So I must have done a good job explaining it because she (laughs) dove right in. And I really think that's the best, you know, explanation that anybody could give. You know, I have agency over my own life, over my own body. And this is what makes me happy, makes me feel fulfilled. This is what I consent to, what I enjoy with my partner. And therefore, it's none of your effing business. (laughs) But if you want to know, I'm fine. And not only fine, but I am happy. Indeed. So hopefully we've given people a little bit to chew on in terms of, you know, what might go on at a high protocol event, what that even means, also what people get out of it at a personal level, even if it's conducted in private. But you both also have a new book coming out. Is that right? Do you want to tell us about it? That is right. So as we approached our 20th anniversary of being in a power exchange relationship, we start, we stepped back and started to look at that relationship just for our own purposes and say, you know, is this still valuable for us? Is it still serving us? You know, because you do anything for a while. You, everyone, it's a good idea to dust it off every once in a while. And in that review, we realized not only is it still valuable to us, we've actually collected a fair amount of reflections and writings about that. And tools of how to keep it going for this long. And and uh, spent, about a, uh, spent quite some time putting together this book, Hearts and Collars. So Hearts and Collars is a book about power exchange relationships based on our 20 years and our reflection of it. But it's not about us per se. It is about how to have long-term, healthy, growing, happy power exchange relationships with plenty of our experience in there. And like... Because we're storytellers. Like, because we're (laughs) storytellers. But much like we described how the high protocol works. We did the book in the same ways, how I look at things and how Dawn looks at things are two different things. So we don't say, well, we think that punishment should only be blah, blah, blah. Uh, I speak in my voice and Dawn speaks in her voice. And we separate that. We, so that, you know, if you're a leader reading it, you'll say, Oh, well, that's why that's how leaders think, but it's also valuable for leaders to read what sub, what followers think. So, um, very happy with the new book and very happy that it's, it's finally come to fruition. And where can people find more information about it? Heartsandcollars.com. And then your other website that's more for events, your eroticawakening.com. Eroticawakening.com does indeed cover events. It covers the other books that we um, have written. And we have our own little podcast over there, Erotic Awakening Podcast, that you can find there as well. 
and our Kickstarter cards and our Zoom classes and everything else that we're doing is, yep, eroticawakening.com. Excellent. Thanks so much for having this talk with me. I really hope we'll have you guys on again sometime. I'm excited to, to share this with everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Our pleasure. Thank you. This was fun. All right. Let's take out the episode with a little bit of erotica. We have been talking about high protocol and in my newest book, which is not yet released, Banish the Light, Turn the Key, number four. There are quite a few scenes that actually involve high protocol. And so I'm giving you guys a really exclusive little sneak peek into my newest book and also giving you a little bit of erotica to help you sort of visualize a high protocol situation. And I really hope you enjoy it. Many lovely nude humans begin to circulate throughout the room, but my eyes are only for Charlotte. She simply takes my breath away when she gracefully kneels before me, adorned only in my harness, and presents her tray. I can't help but feel a possessive thrill when my eyes run across my name on her torso. Lucienne laughs beside me. I'll take my leave now, love, and give you some privacy, but I'll be taking care of business in the back office, and you'll find that your master has added my phone number to your cell phone already. Just ring if you need me. I thank Lucienne, who kisses my hand before he takes his leave. Charlotte maintains her position perfectly, not making a peep while I wrap up my conversation. Good girl, I praise, taking my cocktail from the tray and indicating that she may set the rest on the table. I gesture for the pair of glasses on the tray, and Charlotte fills both with sparkling water without spilling a drop, and then resumes her position on her knees, palms facing upward on her thighs and eyes downcast. Hydrate, I command, handing her a glass of water and setting aside my cocktail to do the same. The smell of the beignets tantalizes me, but I'm focused on Charlotte, as the house service staff return to the kitchen and the members begin to interact with their private submissives. I gently sip the lust from the room, feeling my arousal grow, and any self-doubt fades away. Please me, and I'll give you a reward, I command. Charlotte gives me a wicked grin and shifts closer as I spread my thighs. I'm grateful that the dress is flowy enough to create a barrier between my bare skin and the leather of the armchair. It also provides us with a modicum of privacy while Charlotte ducks her head beneath the crimson fabric and I feel her tongue against my core for the first time. I feel eyes on us from a respectful distance, but as her sinful mouth begins to work, the rest of the crowd fades away completely. Charlotte's tongue explores me with skill, and it takes only a few moments before I find myself digging my fingers into the armrests and allowing my head to drop back in pleasure as I find release. Good girl, I praise again, and Charlotte falls back into position awaiting her next order. Despite her serene face, however, I can feel the pride and satisfaction radiating off of her. I can't help but have a taste. Reaching towards the plate of sweets, I tear off a piece of warm dough and powdered sugar and bring it to Charlotte's lips. I think you deserve a reward, hmm? I whisper, mesmerized as she licks and sucks the sugar from my fingers. When the plate is empty and our bellies are full, my only regret is that the moment can't last longer. I'll be ready to head out soon, I say softly to Charlotte, but I think you deserve one last reward. Stand and put your hands on the table, feet apart, don't move. I rise and stalk slowly towards the ladies' room, leaving Charlotte on display while I wash the remnants of sugar from my hands. 
I take my time, and by the time I return, the anticipation of pleasure to come, and eyes of the crowd have had their intended effect. Starlet's gaze remains locked on the table, but her wetness has begun to trickle down her thighs. I resume my place in my chair, directly behind her, and pause to drink in the loveliness of her submission. Reaching forward with my fingers this time, with improved knowledge of her body, I expertly bring her to the brink of release over and over, denying her requests for release until I sense in her energy that she'll not stand much more torment. Come for me, good girl, I whisper, and enjoy the feeling of her core contracting around my fingers. I smile as her back arches and she swallows her own cries. I hope you have enjoyed this excerpt from Banish the Light, Turn the Key number four. I am hoping it is going to be released later this spring or early this summer, but it is still in the works, so I can't promise a date yet. Thanks as always for listening to Naughty Talk. Our show is available on most popular podcast platforms. For updates, to submit a request to be a guest on the show, to write in with questions for our hosts or request lifestyle advice, head over to the show's page at sunnyleemain.com. You'll also find information about my novels, including my Turn the Key series, which are dark erotica with themes of hypnosis, BDSM, and sometimes a little bit of magic. All books feature different kinks and are queer inclusive. I hope you've enjoyed the show and you join us again next time.